Job 35 is where we turn this morning. Job 35 picks up and expands on an idea that Elihu introduced earlier in chapter 34, kind of in passing, really in brief, but wanted to expound upon here in the next chapter. And that is that statement that he made back in verse 9, chapter 34, verse 9. He, he's quoting Job, he's putting words into Job's mouth somewhat, kind of summarizing some arguments that Job has made. He, Job, has said, it's of no use to a man when he's pleased with God. What's the use? Why should I bend over backwards to please God when what benefit do I get? And maybe you've heard that question often from people where, you know, what's in it for me? Or, or why should I be good if I don't get anything from it? Or, you know, why shouldn't I sin? If it makes me happy and brings no judgment in my life, God's not going to judge me. There's grace, right? Uh, that's the wrong way to approach piety or pleasing God. What profit? What, does, what do I get out of this whole deal? Elihu is going to address that issue and really cut it apart to expose the foolishness that Job is experiencing or demonstrating in his foolish speech. And again, lest you think, what is this Job going to? What is, what is he even saying about it? And why is he doing all these things? Do you remember, it's been some time before, uh, that things, bad things happened to Job? Good grief. He lost his life, essentially, not his physical life, but everything about him. Do you remember it was in a 38-second period? This is if you read this, this text or had these, these servants come back in Job chapter 1. Do you remember he had all these riches and everything, a beautiful, good family? And then he had news. Hey, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell and took them. They also struck down the young men with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, good grief, he had thousands of those oxen and donkey. Now they're all gone, plus his servants are killed. While that servant was speaking, the fire of God, uh, somebody has said, fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the young men and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, good grief, now all the sheep are gone. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans set up three companies and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the young men with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, good grief, all the camels are gone. And, you know, agriculture and, and commercial enterprise and just transportation, all of his means are now eradicated. While this one was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in the house of their brother, the firstborn. And behold, a great wind from across the wilderness uh, came and touched the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow, that's pretty devastating news, all in one fell swoop, if you don't mind. And it, it under mind every aspect of Job's identity, his reputation in the world, because obviously, if there's suffering that comes upon people, they must be notorious sinners, right? Just horrible, bad, bad, no good sinners. And so now Job says, I am undone. I've been exposed as, wait a minute, exposed as what? I'm a righteous guy. I'm a blameless guy. How can this be? But he responded from that point Remember, he arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh is taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. Excellent, Job. Would we have passed the test that way too? Like Job, would we have said, you know, I really enjoyed that house, but now that it's burned down, I guess God is good. I'll, I'll trust God. He gave, he took away. It, blessed be the name of Yahweh. Or God took this, you know, he gave me this loved one for this little while, and now he took him. Thank God for what he gave. Thank God for what he took. Can we have that kind of a faith, that kind of assurance, that kind of simple childlike trust that God is good in those regards? 
Well, it got worse, chapter 2, I won't rehearse all of that, but, but uh, Satan came and smote, uh, Satan, smote Job rather from the, how does it say, with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head, verse 7 of chapter 2. And he was sitting in the ash heap, scraping his, his uh, sores with a potsherd, a little piece of broken pottery. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And then Job responded again, how we, we wish and hope that we would respond when God sends adversity our way. He said to her, you speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? Because God appoints both for his, for his servants, for his purposes. And all this, verse 10 says, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, in some respects, we, we wish that, well, wouldn't it be nice if we just skipped from, from chapter 2, verse 10, Job did not sin with his lips, to chapter 42, verse whatever, when God restored all that stuff and gave him oh, a double for everything he lost. Wouldn't that be just nice? Well, in the midst of it, we have a long discussion about, you know, what does it mean to fear God? What does it mean to recognize as Job celebrated, God has given, God has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. God brings good times in our lives and God brings adversity. We're going to praise him. We're going to trust him. We're going to accept all things from his hand because he is the one who gives these things for our good and our benefit. When the middle or in the midst of that, 2 verse 10 and chapter 42, we have this long, dramatic, poetic uh, demonstration of the best wisdom of the day. Job and, and Eliphaz and Zophar, Bildad and Zophar, talking all these different things and essentially, of course, saying, you know, sin uh, leads to suffering and, and uh, piety leads to prosperity and all these kind of things that normally would work out in the long run. Yes, that's good. In fact, you can turn to it later, Psalm 18, David is speaking, and he basically rehearses that re- retribution principle. He says, I, I was good, and therefore God gave to me. He recompensed me according to my deeds, and he's going to bring evil upon the heads of those who plot evil. And we long for that, both the, the recompense, the reward for our good things, and the judgment on those who do evil. God, you know, bring, those, bring that soon. And God will. There's no doubt about that. And yet, why do we not always see that? Why do we see the righteous suffering? Why do we see those wicked people prospering in so many different things? And compounding the discussion of all these these things of how does God work in the world and how do we relate back to him? Job is suffering physically. He's he's lost his people. He's lost his wife to, to, to foolishness anyway. I think there's a reconciliation that goes on later. He feels horrible. And he's speaking, when he speaks in chapter 3, I'm not going to preach the whole book again, but, but he, when he speaks in chapter 3 and he says, you know, why was I ever born? Why did I not die at birth? And why am I still alive? I mean, that's, those are pretty serious questions. He was never suicidal, never thought that he should take matters into his own hands and end his death, end his life rather, in death, but said, God, why don't you come and finish the job? You've already started. You've done a good job destroying my life already. Why don't you just finish it and let me get out of this horrible situation? When Eliphaz responds to him in chapters 4 and 5, Job responds responds to Eliphaz in chapter 6, and he says, Oh, that my vexation were actually weighed and laid in the balances together with my destruction, uh, for then it would have been heavier than the sand of the seas. Therefore, my words have been rash. He recognizes, Job does, that he's speaking things that, that he, he's speaking out of the vexation of his soul. He's speaking things out of the 
the horror that he's experiencing, the, the, dis, the destruction of his entire life and livelihood and the blessing that he was able to be, that he enjoyed being to his society, his friends, his neighbors, a man of justice, a man of peace, a man of wisdom, and now that's gone. And when he's speaking these things that really on many occasions have taken our breath away, Job, what are you, do you hear yourself saying these things? What are you saying about? We re- recognize that, yes, he's speaking foolishly, but we need also to recognize what kind of extreme situation he was going through. Not excusing his, his foolishness. God doesn't excuse his foolishness. And neither does Elihu when we get to, to the text here. But just to, to put that back into perspective, because sometimes we, we, we're moving along rather slowly, maybe quickly, I don't know. And we sometimes forget, whoa, Job is a man of extremes, extreme blessing and prosperity and, and identity or reputation. And now he's at the bottom. And no wonder he speaks out of the, the vexation of his soul. But he's speaking not rightly. He's speaking foolishly in these many, many regards. He says some things, we've, we've seen some of those high points about, I know my Redeemer lives, and I know that I'm, I'm going to wait until my change comes, as seeming to indicate a resurrection. He's looking for a mediator who can bring God and man together and, and argue together. So he has a lot of high points, but then a lot of low points too in his words. And that's us. I mean, in some respects, we should see ourselves in Job. In other respects, Job is much more godly than I, I would ever hope to be in my own experience. Wow, this man who, who God spoke of as my servant, my servant, my servant, the one who was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Those are the, the things that we aspire to because insofar as Job is a righteous person, he's reflecting Christ. He's reflecting the submission that Christ made, uh, suffering, uh, learning through the things that he suffered, learning obedience through the things that he suffered so that he would honor his father. All those things come to mind as we get into our text in Job uh, chapter 35. Remember there are four speeches that Elihu offers to the friends, certainly, but here uh, specifically to Job. Chapters 32 and 33 uh, speak about how God is not silent, even in your affliction. God is not silent. He speaks through affliction. He's speaking comfort. He's speaking discipline to you. Listen to him. Job, you say you can't see him, but he's there. He's working. In his next speech, which we looked at um, Whenever it was, we looked at was it just last week? Job's ways are just. God's ways are just. Excuse me. Chapter thirty-four. God's ways are just. God is always just. You should never think that God could do unrighteousness or unjust uh, actions toward people. No, He's always doing what is right and, and appropriate. This third speech we'll look at this morning. Job is wrong about piety. You're just wrong about the, you, you, the way that you're approaching this. The way that you are locked into this foolish principle and it's totally self-centered. It's wrong. You're wrong. Let me correct you. And he speaks, this, this third speech is directly, directed specifically toward Job. The friends aren't really mentioned in the, in the course of, of Elihu's speech. The fourth speech of Elihu that we'll look at uh, next time is in chapters 36 and 37, which essentially celebrates God is great. God is so above you. He's, his wisdom is so above you, his power, his knowledge. And the point is you should be very small, Job, and let God be God. Trust him. Uh, you can trust him. And so Job should not ask these kind of questions. Why should I be good if I don't get anything from it? And why shouldn't I sin if it makes me happy and brings no judgment in my life? Elihu says, you're speaking foolishness. What in the world are you doing here? Let me read this, this first idea, these first couple of verses, chapters, chapter 35, verses 1 through 4. Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what use will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I'd sinned? 
I'll respond to you and your friends with you. You guys can listen in, he says. But I'm talking to you, Job. He says, he's answering, he's going on. This is the third of the four speeches. He says, do you think this is according to justice? Do you, do you think rightly about these things, justly, appropriately? Are, are you giving God the benefit of the doubt? Are you just questioning God? Are you saying, God, you don't know what you're doing? Uh, Job is, is basically saying that. He, and, and Elihu's going to quote some different phrases that Job has said or kind of the, the heart or the essence of Job's claims. But he says, do you think... Do you think that what you're saying is right? Do you think that that is the proper way to think about God and to speak about him? Uh, other translations of that phrase said, do you think this to be just? Do you think this is according to justice? Do you think it's right? And he says, you're saying these things that aren't, they're not sound. You're speaking kind of like those foolish women, those wickedly foolish women you accused your wife of speaking like back in chapter two. And he says, and this this is one example here, there's going to be another one at the end of the chapter where there is indirect speech or direct speech. Direct speech is when I say, um, so-and-so said, quote, I'm going to the store, end quote. That's a direct speech. If I quote you indirectly, I say, hey, you said that you're going to the store, right? That's indirect speech. I'm, I'm quoting you, but I'm putting it in an indirect way. I don't, a quotation mark's not around. The question is, what quotation marks belong in this, in this text? Is Elihu quoting a specific statement of Job? Is he, staying, is he quoting Job directly? Is he quoting him indirectly? How many words of these belong in Job's mouth versus how much of it is coming from Elihu's perspective? We'll see this again at the end of the chapter. And so he's quoting him. And in some regards, verse 2 says, Do you say, or it could be translated, Do you think it's right when you say this, My righteousness is more than God's? The idea is, are you thinking rightly about what you're saying in your words? Because you're claiming, in essence, never do we see these words come out of Job's mouth, but he says in so many accusations against God, I'm more righteous than God. I've got things better figured out than God does. If God would just listen to me, because there's so much wickedness going on that God has not answered, and there's so much righteousness going on that God has somehow brought punishment upon us, uh, suffering upon us, and I just got, God has got to listen to me and he's got to learn some things from me. He's got to bend his crookedness back to my straight way, right? If you were to look at justice, you'd say this is a straight line and and Job says God's crooked in that regard, which again takes our breath away. What is this God, what, what is Job saying about God? Saying that God has removed my justice, I'm righteous, but God has removed my justice. And of course, Elihu was angry about this whole thing back in chapter 32 that, uh, Verse 2, Job, Elihu's anger burned against Job because he was proving himself righteous before God or more righteous than God. And so this righteousness has to do with a sense of justice, fairness, appropriateness, and so forth. And then this next question, for you say, what use will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I'd sinned? And so he, he's saying, look, how does my righteousness or my unrighteousness affect God? How, you know, what's it, what, why is God so concerned about this? Remember how Job has said, God, if you just avert your gaze from me just a little while, let me have some rest and respite. Let me swallow my spit just a moment. Let me get some comfort out of this life because your gaze is so much upon me. It's heavy upon me. Your hand, your arrows smite me. What, why are you so angry about my life? What use will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I'd sin? In other words, why don't I just sin? Because that seems the easy way out. That's what everybody else is doing. Why don't I do that? If God's not going to judge me, 
because he's not judging those other obviously wicked people. Why don't I just do that myself as well? And again, these are words coming out of Elihu, but they're summarizing what Job has said. Do you remember back in chapter 9, verse 22, Job said, quote, if you don't mind, it's all one. Therefore, I say, he consumes the blameless and the wicked, end quote. So this is Job saying, you know, it doesn't matter. God treats everybody the same, which in some regards, right, impartial, but in the regard of, wait a minute, these are obviously righteous, these are obviously wicked, but God treats them the same. He consumes them both. He destroys them. He brings judgment upon both their heads. So why should I take the trouble? And this is essentially the argument of Psalm 73, Asaph, that you could look at another time. If I, this is um, quoting one commentary, he says, if I take trouble to live a penitent and godly life, what is the point if, despite my virtue, I experience such terrible suffering? Surely I might at least expect some measure of blessing instead of this dreadful pain. He was quoting, indirectly quoting uh, Job, and, he's, and the commentary goes on. That is Job's question and objection. Elihu answers it with considerable robustness. There's no arm around Job's shoulder and no sympathetic cup of tea, but rather a strong rebuke. Wrong, 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 Job. How are you even thinking these things? And so he says in verse 4, I'm going to respond to you. I can't let this go. You, you're speaking things that are wrong about God. You are challenging him. You're finding fault with God. We've got to put this in perspective. I know always in the back of your mind, at least my mind, is in chapter 42 when God rebukes Eliphaz and, and Zophar and Bildad. You have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. And we think, God, were you listening to Job all that time when he was speaking things that were not true? Yes, God was listening to him. When, when God speaks to Job two different times, well, one time specifically, he says, you, who, where is this fault finder, the one who contends with the Almighty? So yes, God did understand that Job was speaking things that were not right and not appropriate, and yet he uh, recognizes that Job is saying things that are right, especially those two statements at, in chapter 40, um, chapter 40 and 42, when, when Job responds to God's revelation. But we see that God, excuse me, Elihu is responding to Job and the other friends can listen too. And he says, oh, I didn't even tell you this. There you go. Verse 2. Are you right in saying this? Are you thinking rightly about these things? Do you think this according to justice? And what is Job's argument? It doesn't matter what I do, what I don't do. If God's going to not judge me or, or will judge me regardless of my actions, then, then uh, what, what, why should I uh, labor to be righteous? And he says the basis of it is, look, God, uh, uh, what use is it of God? What profit will I have? It's a very self-centered argument. What, what's in it for me? And Elihu's rebuke in verse 4. Now we see in verses 5 through 8 a first response of Elihu. And essentially, whatever you do or don't do, God is not obligated to act on your behalf, on his behalf. He's not ob you don't put him in a position that somehow you forced his hand that somehow by your actions, what you do or don't do, that somehow God is obligated or must respond to you. Now, God is, is so high above you that you, you cannot affect him or afflict him. Now, it's not to say that God is not active and involved with the affairs of men. It's just to say that, that we think that, that, I guess, and this is in a human perspective too, we think other people think of us a lot more than they actually do. In other words, you know, we think everybody's watching us all the time. No. People think, oh, my reputation. No, you think of yourself a lot more than other people think of you. You're so consumed with yourself. And Job is saying that, you know, why does God even care what we're about? 
And why, it, why, is, why is this such a big deal to him, the sin or righteousness? And Elihu says, you're kind of right, but you, you've, you've misplaced the purpose of godliness or prosperity or godliness, excuse me, not prosperity, godliness, piety, religiosity, virtue. You're, you're thinking wrongly about that. And so he says here in verse 5, uh, look, he says, look at the heavens and see and perceive the clouds. They're higher than you. If you've sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. In other words, you're not asking the right question, Job. You're, you're coming about it the wrong way. You're thinking about all about from yourself, your own perspective. But let me help you see that God is higher than you. Verse 5 says, look at the heavens and see and perceive the clouds. They're higher than you. You can't even, what you're doing down on earth, you're, you're sitting in this ash heap, you're scraping yourself, the clouds go by. The clouds take no notice of you. They don't care about what you're doing. Your actions down here, your words, which you are, are speaking out of the overflow, the fixation of your heart, the clouds don't care. The heavens are so high above you. Look at those things and remember your smallness. There's an example Nobody here was around when Theodore Roosevelt was president, but apparently, you know, outdoorsman as he was, when he was president, he would take various people coming to the White House out on the front lawn or whatever lawn of the White House and lie down on the grass and gaze at the stars. Oh, good outdoorsman, right, doing that. And then after some period of time, he would get up and he would say to his guests, I think we are all small enough. Let's go to bed. And so the idea that when you reset your perspective from the heavens, and God's going to do this again in chapter uh, 40, is it, when we get to it, when he talks about the Orion and the Pleiades and, the, and all these wonderful things. Can you do anything in relation to the stars? The heavens are so high above you. Even the clouds, we think, oh, the clouds, we can... No, I mean, we can't touch the clouds. I mean, we're trying to do things to change rain patterns and so forth, but God is the one who established these, these things. He's the one who orders all the clouds to accomplish his purposes. Our sin, he says in verse 6, our sin does not cause God to suffer. If you sin, what do you accomplish? What do you gain by sinning? How do, how do you make God obligated to act in any way? God is not obligated to act based on our performance. He is obligated to act based on who he is. In other words, God is just and he will punish sin. God is just and he will reward righteousness. But we can't say, you know, I've done my, my 30 good deeds for the day. God, when are you going to pay me back, right? Where's my payment day? Or... Hey, God, did you see what they just did? They jaywalked so egregiously. Can you we strike them down? And we get so outraged over other people's sin. What about ourselves? Kind of, maybe Jesus told a parable about something sticking out of our eyes. That we get outraged over other people's sin. God, judge them right now. And we say, hey, where's my wage for all this good stuff I've, doing, I've been doing? And he says, you can't do that. What do you accomplish against him? If your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? God is not obligated to act in any regard based on our performance. It's based on who he is, his character, that he acts. Whatever you do, if you're sinning, if you're transgressing God's word, God is self-sufficient. God is independent of our actions. Now, he has entered into our existence, and we even sang it. Did we sing it this morning, or is I making it up? That... Uh, God will come and live among us and we will be his people. That's all throughout scripture. God has that, has that desire to come down and speak to his people. Genesis uh, 3, God came down to speak to Adam in the cool of the day. And he's, where, where are you, Adam? 
That was God's desire to be with his people. We see it regularly, the tabernacle, the temple, Christ himself dwelling among his people, the promise of him in the, in the new Jerusalem coming and where he is there, we shall be with him. And so we, we see that interaction that God has. And yet in another respect, now, nah, what if you've sinned, you can't af- affect him, you can't afflict him, you can't bind him. There are many things, and we've, we've heard this in church history and other examples, where people make a vow to the Lord. You know, God, uh, I'll do this if you do this. And, and somehow, well, you know, okay, I've, you know, I made a deal with you, God, and so you've got to hold, uphold your end of the bargain. God doesn't have to do that. You ought to do it. You ought to fulfill your vow. Ecclesiastes 5 says, if you made a, make a vow to God, don't be late in paying it. And yet, God makes his own vows, and he promises not based on a, uh, a contract with people, based on who he is himself. Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant is based on God. Well, the Mosaic covenant is a little bit different because it has conditional elements. But the, the covenants, the vows that God makes, it's based on his character. And what we do or don't do doesn't affect it. And there's a lot of theology wrapped into that statement, but God is the one. So our actions do not, again, obligate God or, or cause him to, to act uh, here, verse 7 says, acts of righteousness. Sin doesn't cause God to suffer. Acts of righteousness do not obligate God to act. If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? We think, you know, and this is in, the, in uh, Romans 11, that who has first given to God that it must be repaid to him? You know, somehow, you know, God, I, I gave you this. I entrusted this to you and, and now you owe me. So pay back, you know, give me back what I, what I am owed by you. You're, you're in, in, or not in cahoots. You're in arrears to me, or you're, you've, you're, you're missing some payments. You've got to pay me back. No, you've, you never put God in a position where he has to respond to you, which kind of cuts right against Job's whole thing. God, I've presented my case. I declared I am righteous. I have disavowed all these sins. Now let the Almighty answer me. Here's my signature. Does God oh, say, oh, Job, I see that you've put me in a really tough spot. I better come down and answer you. He doesn't. God does not, nothing that Job has done puts God in a position to oh, justify his actions. Oh, Job, you don't understand. I was doing this. God never has to apologize for his actions to Job. Now, maybe we think, well, God has to apologize to me because do you know what he's put me through? God, have you heard that statement? Have you ever thought about that when we talk back to God and find fault with him? God is not obligated to respond, to justify his choices. In fact, when he comes and speaks, he doesn't answer anything of what Job has said. He basically puts Job in his place. Are you God? Somehow there may be a chain of command or an organizational flowchart that's not in place here. I think I'm God. Let me, let me just test. Job, do you know anything about being God? Okay, then you better take your place, which is at my feet, and worship me. And that's what God is speaking to us. Worship God. Don't think that somehow God is, it owes us anything. What does God owe us? Judgment. By mercy, by grace, we can have a reconciliation with him. Verse 8 says, Your wickedness and righteousness, they don't affect God, but they do affect humanity. And our perspective ought not to be, what do I get out of this? Or why am I busting my britches to, to do this when God doesn't pay me back for anything? Why don't I just live the way I want to live like I see so many people around me living? Why don't I do that? Because at least that'll make me happy. And yet even in that, really, do you see a lot of happy sinners? Well, maybe on the appearance of it, but long term, they're miserable. They are, are you know broken relationships here and over here, marriages, kids, estranged uh, 
how many bankruptcies have you declared in your last 10 years? You know, uh, kind of when they get together over cocktails. Uh, you know, just horrible, horrible situations. And, and so Elihu is saying, your wickedness affects humanity, your society, the people around you. Don't be so self-centered and say, it's about me. What can I get out of it? No, what kind of a blessing can you be to other people? Which might be a, a little cheeky, maybe a little overstating it, because Job did evidence the fact and the, the blessing to him that he was able to be a blessing to other people. He did have, remember in, in Job 31, when he's recounting all these, these sins, he's speaking of it in relation to other people, giving judgment and listening to them and, and uh, uh, giving aid, you know, benevolence to other people. And so he's very much oriented toward other people. He's not so selfish in that regard. He's a very generous person. But in this way of thinking, it's all about me. Why, why doesn't God recognize that I've done these things? Why doesn't God reward me for my, my good behavior? Why, did, why is God so angry with me? I don't understand it. Elihu says, look, society is helped or hindered by the way that people conduct themselves. And we see that. We see when, when people are doing well, hey, society is blessed. Good deeds build society. One person said, well, evil deeds cause social discord. And so Elihu is raising Job's purview or perspective on things. Okay, quit talking about yourself. Realize what you are doing in relation to other people. That somehow Job, we looked at in chapter 34, somehow Job, you're, you're, you're speaking things and leading people that are listening. You're leading them away from God, not toward God. Job, you better just shh, quiet, settle down, wait for God, listen to him. Uh, Elihu goes on in the next part of this speech, uh, beginning verse 9, and says, you know, God does not always deliver those who are suffering. God doesn't always come to the aid. God does not always, or again, carrying that idea, God is not obligated to act. God does things in his, in his own time, in his own way, for his own purposes, that sometimes we don't understand. When we pray for you know, God to judge the wicked and, and vindicate the righteous, sometimes we're we're confused. Which one is the righteous in this situation? Or who's the wicked one in this situation? Think of it in terms of marriage counseling so much. Okay, who's the one who's, who, who's the guilty uh, member and who's the innocent? There is no innocent. There's sin. There's enough sin to go around. Don't, don't think that, oh, she has the corner of this and he's over. No, we, we sin and we're sinning against. But the point is God is not obligated or put in a position ever to have to, must, you know, X, Y, Z, or uh, one, two, three, or the idea A plus B is C. There's nothing like that. God acts outside of our little, neat little paradigm, which is the whole thing about the friends. The way that you're thinking about this is wrong. It's so simple, so so nice and tidy, but that has nothing. That's irrelevant. That's nothing in relation to real reality. God does not always deliver those who suffer. Uh, verse 9 through the end of the chapter. Let me read the, um, this whole text here. Because of many oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of many oppressors. But no one says, where is God, my maker, who gives us praise, songs of praise in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds in the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty perceive it. How much less, Job... When you say you do not perceive him, the case is before him and you must wait for him. And now because he's not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression well, so Job opens his mouth vainly. He multiplies words without knowledge. We think 
you know, part of the issue with working through Job is it's ancient literature. It's written in a poetic style, which means lots of figurative, lot of lot of analogies, lots of things going on. And we think sometimes, what are you saying? And how does that relate to what you just said? And it, 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 it's a hindrance to us sometimes. But when we work through it, take our time, we'll recognize, you know, God is God. And don't think that you can ever put him in a position put him in a position where you, where you do something and therefore you expect God to answer. There's so many times that we see in the scriptures that, okay, well, if we do this, then God's going to do this and we can see it's going to be good. For example, when the Israelites were fighting the Philistines down at um, Aphek, Antipatris, former, later known as down on the coast, and they, the Philistines were about ready to be whooped. Uh, and yet they said, you know, we need to rise up and fight because the Israelites are bringing down the Ark of the Covenant, and the Israelites were thinking, hey, if we bring God down with us, then he'll give us the victory. Let's do that. Not that, why don't you repent and why don't you do what God wants you to do? Why don't you be obedient for once? Why don't you call upon him and let him fight your battles? No, let's take him down because if we bring him down, he's got to act. And the Philistines just you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and says, fight men, fight. And they did. And they won. And they took the Ark of the Covenant. And we think, wait a minute. I, Israelites thought that they had God in a box, literally. And, he, and God says, no, I'm God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do for my own glory. Don't worry about me. And you Israelites, why don't you try reading my book? Why don't you listen to what I've already told you? Why don't you obey what I've told you? Again, this is the, at the end of the judges period. Saul is king, of course. or not, He's not even king. This is uh, earlier in that uh, whole situation. So people are just oblivious to God's expectations. But they think, oh, we've got God by the, by the heels. We're gonna, he's going to have to come to our aid. No. It's amazing. You read the rest of that text, it's 1 Samuel 5, 6, 7, that God does mighty things for his own glory that nobody can you know, strain their, their arm trying to pat themselves on the back. When the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the idol uh, temples of the Philistines, wow, what God does to defend his own glory Amazing. Read about it in the book. God is not obligated to act in any regard. God does not always deliver those who suffer. Now the oppressed cry out, verse 9 says, and he gets us into a whole different situation here in verse 9. Because of many oppressions, they cry out. Who, is it, who are they? It's the people being oppressed, those who are being uh, uh, treated poorly by other people. It says they cry for help because of the arm of many oppressors. You know, they, People are rising up against them for whatever reason. The, the issue is not, you know, why are they getting stuff? Who's, who's do? No, that's not the point. The point is, people are crying out for God to help them. They want assistance. They want deliverance from God. They think, well, right, Joel 2 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, right? So we're going to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, it does not put God in a position to respond just because you call upon him. If you call upon him poorly and all these things, James 4, you could read that as well. If we don't, ha- we don't have because we don't ask. And when we do ask, we act to ask it for wrong motives to so be spent on our own desires. So God knows. He knows what we want. He knows what we need. He knows why we want it. And if, if those things don't honor him and glorify him, he's not obligated to give us anything. He gives according to his goodness and according to his wisdom. And so when these people cry out, they cry for help, help, help. It's one of the shortest prayers, right? Lord, save me, or just help. Uh, I'm at my wit's end, and we don't need long prayers. When we're in a, in a tight spot, we don't need to say, God, and we all these, and please, and blah, 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 save. Just get right to the point, right? You need help, God will help. 
But if you ask with right motives, right purpose, faith even, as he goes on and says here, the oppressed cry out, verse 9 says, but God does not deliver because they lack faith and are proud. Verse 10 says, no one of these people crying out says, in faith, in humility, where is God, my maker? Not in a, in a negative sense or kind of like, remember Pharaoh uh, kind of said it a little different way, but in um, when Moses is saying, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? Besides, I'm not going to let his people go. Get back to work. So that kind of dismissive question, who is the Lord, right? Who is Yahweh? Or this, where is God my maker? No, it's not a negative sense. It is, where is God my maker? Where is my deliverer? Where is the one who made me? Which Job has said a lot about in his, his things. God, you made me from dust, and now do you turn me back to dust? Did you destroy me? I thought you'd have to pay more attention to me. I thought you'd be kinder to me. So, but this, this humble, kind of a, a lowly aspect of God, these, pers- these people who are oppressed, not, not universally, but generically, generic picture, those whom God does not deliver, there's a reason. Because they do not humble themselves before God. They're not seeking God, asking, where is this one? Where is he? Uh, like in Jeremiah 2 and verse 6 and 8, these people did not say, where is Yahweh? Where is he? I thought he would come to our aid. And the priests did not say, where is Yahweh? Had no thought of God in the good times, only in the bad times. Whoa, we're in a tight spot. We better call upon God because he can deliver us. He might not come. We're reading through Saul's life, right? And, and even the prayer that Saul asked of God, God says, no, I'm not going to deliver you. Against the Philistines, God, the, God, you're, you hate those Philistines. They're pagans. No, you're going to die by the hand of the Philistines, you and your sons, because you did not honor me. You did not obey me. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Because you did not obey me, I'm taking the kingdom from you, giving it to a man who's better than you, a man your neighbor. And so, whoa, that's not nice, God. I thought Saul was your chosen guy. Yeah, but when he doesn't do what I told him to do, he's out. He's gone. He's going to be killed by those people that he ought to be killing because they're Philistines, they're pagans. They're, they're not honoring to God. They have their own idols before God. And so God is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the hearts, which comforts us and also should terrify us. Whoa, God, you know, you know everything about me. Yeah. So when, but I just cried out to you. I called upon, yeah, and I'm not going to help you. Because I know what you're about. I know your, your motive. I, I know. What you ought to do is repent. You ought to confess your sin, your disobedience to me. You ought to come to me in humility, not in all your pride and arrogance and demanding that your way. No. Come in this regard. None of these people who God does not deliver will say this, where's God my maker? In a very humble, seeking sign of a sense. And they say, this is the God who gives us songs of praise, it says, in the night. He is the one who is so near to us. The nighttime, when our defenses are down, when maybe we're thinking uh, kind of lonely thoughts or, or uh, uh, we get depressed or distressed over things, we're just overwhelmed with all kinds of things. We're, we're sitting on our, or lying on our beds and our minds are just whirling, twirling around. We don't know. We can't find peace. We can't find rest. Where is God who gives us these songs? Songs of praise in the night. Remember how when... Acts 16, Paul and Silas were, were bound, right, in the stocks and imprisoned in Philippi. And what'd they do? They started, you know, hey, Silas, when you get access to a stylus, write down these things. Woe is me. Woe is us. Things are so horrible. Why are we treated as, we're apostles of Jesus. And look how we're being treated. 
Silas, you make sure that you record that for you. Yeah, Silas, yeah, I'm going to do that. No. What were they doing? Singing psalms of praise. And guess what happened? All the people around heard them. The jailer heard them. And when the earthquake comes and all this, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What kind of, how can I have that kind of assurance, that joy in the midst of affliction that you do? It's supernatural. I don't understand it. And so God gives these songs of praise, songs for, it literally says, the songs in the night. And there used to be a, a program on the radio, uh, Night Sounds, maybe you remember that, by Bill Pierce, played the trombone, which is not the best instrument, but pretty pretty good one. I played the trombone, used to. Anyway, he had this program coming from this verse. He gives us songs in the night. He gives us comfort. He gives us encouragement. He gives us praise. He gives us instruction, songs for instruction in the nighttime when we're at our most vulnerable. He is there in our midst. That's how these people ought to come. Those who are oppressed come to God humbly saying, God is the one who is able to deliver me and may not even give me the deliverance I asked for. But in the midst of it, he gives me praise. He gives me comfort. He teaches me through these things. Verse 11 says, He teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. This is what these people ought to be saying. In the midst of my suffering, God is teaching me. God is teaching me because he loves me more than the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the earth. He has given me... People are different than beasts and birds. We are made in the image of God. God loves beasts and birds and rocks and trees and all this stuff, but not like he loves people. God did not send his son in the form of a rock to save the rocks. He sent God, God sent his son in the form of man to save humanity. And so we have that, but we can learn from the beasts of the earth, the birds of the heavens. God teaches us. He is there to instruct us in the course of our great distresses. Remember Job had said this about uh, the wise guys. This is chapter 12 of Job. Remember verse 2 said, surely you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He says, verse 7, ask the beast, let them instruct you and the birds of the sky, they'll, and let them tell you. Or you can talk to the earth. And these, The point is, learn from creation. Learn about how God works in with the birds and the beasts. Remember how Jesus even appealed to that. God is aware even when a sparrow falls to the ground, how much more does he care for you? And so we, we can learn from these things. We can see how God is so kind and teaches us more than he spends time with those who are beasts and birds. He says, verse 12, they, they cry out, but he does not answer them. Wait a minute. I thought that's part of the deal. Cry out to God, he saves. Cry out to God, he saves. Not always. They cry out to him, sure enough, but he does not answer. Why? Because of the pride of evil men. And you think, what does the evil men have to do with this? I'm trying to get saved. And we ought to think, wait a minute. Am I the evil man? Am I the one that is proud in the, in the thoughts and intents of my heart? I mean, yeah, those other people. What about me? Start with yourself first. Not in a self-focused, self-centered kind of a way, but self-examination. We think, why am I in this difficult spot? Well, let's, let's consider what kind of sin am I in? What kind of uh, appetites, lusts, desires, lies that I'm believing and practicing? Where can I confess these things? Why, how am I walking in the pride of my heart? And we have to always think, because this is the whole issue of the book, okay, suffering follows sin. If I'm sinning, I'm, I'm suffering. Not always. Sometimes, yes, not always. But there are a lot of reasons why we enter into suffering. Didactic reasons, uh, discipline reasons, punishment reasons. 
we ought to start with the things that are within our power. It's not just that evil people are being evil. We should expect that. What about me? I'm a child of the king and I'm being evil. I am being all proud and arrogant and, and being full of myself. That's not righteous. That's not honoring to God. God does not answer because of the pride of evil men. And we ought to think not just those other people, men, other evil men, me. I can be an evil person and I want God to rescue me if I humble myself, repent and turn back to him. Verse 13 says, God will not answer, surely God will not answer an empty cry, nor will the Almighty perceive it. You think, what is an empty cry? Uh, something that is empty, vain, worthless. There's nothing to it. People cry out, they're giving lip service to God, but they have no interest in serving God. They have no interest in changing their ways. So many people who vow, you know, God, I'm coming through this surgery, or I hope to come through this surgery. Lord, if, I, if, you, get me, if you get me through this, I'll, I'll serve you. You know, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. You get me through it and I'll serve you. What? Oh, so you've, you've, put, you've obligated God now to act? Is that how you, how you think? No, you haven't. What you ought to do is say, God, I'm going to the surgery. May your will be done. Whether I live, whether I die, whatever, I want to live, I want to, live to please you. I want to trust you. I want to, to draw near to you. And if, if the suffering continues and even gets worse in my life, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to cling to you because you are my righteousness. You're my life. You're my joy. Regardless of what happens, these who cry out with an empty cry doesn't get God's attention. Oh, did you, what, get God, what get, does get God's attention? Repentance. I think Ahab. Ahab, who humbled himself. Ahab was an evil, evil, evil king. But when he humbled himself and repented and confessed to God, God said, hey, did you just see what Ahab did? And so God said, I'm not going to bring judgment. That I'm going to bring judgment upon Israel, but I'm going to wait until after Ahab dies. I don't know that we'll see Ahab in heaven, but what, is, what, gets, God, what gets God's attention? Repentance. Not pride and humility, not pride and arrogance and being all self-righteous and everything. You know, the, why does the physician come to the well? It's the sick who need a physician. Recognize you're sick. Recognize that you need help from God. Don't say, I've got it all figured out. The Almighty is not going to perceive that. It doesn't get God's attention. God is not bound to or, or obligated to respond in any way in that regard. So if these people who are crying out for deliverance don't, get deliverance because God sees through their, their claims and says they're, they're, not, they're not asking in faith. They're not asking humility. Elihu now turns to Job and says, you shouldn't expect deliverance. Job, you're asking for vindication. You're asking God to come to your aid and rescue you. No. He, you should not expect anything from God except opposition because of what you're claiming against God. And this is where you have that issue of indirect quotation or indirect speech, I'm going to go on a limb and say I think all this, down to verse, uh, verses 14 and 15, is Job speaking, kind of in an indirect way. In other words, a lot of people regard verse 15 as Elihu's commentary or instruction to Job. And I think, no, this is Job speaking. And I'll point this out as we go along. Verse 14 says, how much less when you say you do not perceive him. This is indirect speech, right? You say you do not perceive him. The case is before him and you must wait for him. And now because he's not visited in his anger, nor has he acknowledged transgression, well, uh, and it goes on to the next statement, so Job opens his mouth mainly. I think that, that Elihu in, in verses 14 and 15 is quoting Job. It's kind of summarizing a lot of statements that he's made and saying, These are, this is what you're claiming and this is why God's not going to deliver you based on your statements. You say you don't perceive him. It's the same word as you saw in the previous verse, 
the Almighty will not perceive it. You say you don't perceive him. You don't, you don't uh, experience or recognize his uh, presence among you. You're, you're looking for him and you, you think that he doesn't, he's not aware of, of you and you're not aware of him. You, where is God in this situation? And a lack of faith kind of situation. And he says, the case is before him and you must wait for him. A lot of people regard Elihu as saying, hey, Job, you've already presented your case. Wait for him. I don't think that's the case at all. That's the issue at all. I don't think that's the, what's going on. I think Job is claiming, I've presented my case before him. I'm going to wait. That idea of waiting is uh, kind of uh, an uncomfortable kind of a wait, a writhing kind of a uh, impatient, demanding, Where, where's God and where's he going to come to my aid? I've already presented my case. He's obligated to act. And Elihu says, you're speaking foolishness, Job. So you presented your case. That amounts to nothing. God is not obligated to see your righteousness and see your wickedness and judge you or award you. No. You just rest. You just stop. Stop your arguing. Stop your fault finding against God. Stop your saying, I'm more righteous than God. At least, maybe not in his words. He would never say that so blatantly. But that's what he's argued for all these chapters. I, I've got this. God has wronged me. God has done me injustice. All these things. And and no, you you cannot say these things. And again, I think quoting or indirectly quoting Job, verse 15, and now because God has not visited in his anger, God has not come down and you know busted the chops of the wicked, he's not come down and, and vindicated me, uh, he has not, he hasn't recognized transgression well, he's not come to, in judgment, he, he's delaying in this, he doesn't, he's not so concerned about justice, this God. I don't know where he is, what is he doing? Does he even see these things? Does he know what's going on? And Elihu says, <laughs> Job, you, verse 16, you are speaking vainly. You're speaking nothing. You've got these little comic strips with the speech bubbles. They're empty. And Job is here doing all these kind of, blah, blah, blah. it's empty, nothing. No contribution, nothing praising God, nothing extolling God's perfections, his justice, his holiness, just nothing. And it says he multiplies words without knowledge. You have no idea, Job, what you are talking about. And later, Job is going to say, yeah, Elihu, you're right. I didn't know what I was talking about. But Job, he opens his mouth. He speaks things that are just empty words. Same word that you see so often in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, just empty emptiness. Uh, uh, just a vapor with nothing in it. Uh, just, there's no profit. There's no benefit, what you're saying. It is, it's falsehoods. It is not honoring to God. It does not lead people to faith. It is leading away from faith. You're talking more about your own righteousness and God's righteousness. Wrong. And it's not just that you're adding these words to each You are multiplying. And if he could say it this way, you're exponentially uh, growing, all these things. But it's not according to knowledge. You don't know what you're talking about. You are trying to say these things. You're trying to explain all these things, but it's not helpful. Now, we've seen a, a phrase like this before. The friends said this to Job, Bildad, for example. How long will you say these things and words of your mouth be a mighty wind? And Zophar said, shall your boast silence men and shall you mock and none rebuke? And Eliphaz said, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? And other people say that. Job says it against his friends, you know, uh, how, how then will you vainly comfort me? Indeed, when your answers remain full of falsehood and you speak with utter vanity. Well, this is what God is going to come down very, very soon and going to expose Job, chapter 38, verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Whoa. 
that's not Elihu speaking. This is God coming down, and he's talking to Job. Uh, whatever the, the, the personification of God's presence was in whirlwind, how God is speaking right to Job. It's not to the friends. Where is this one? Do you know this? Were you there? Where were you? Explain this, why don't you? Who is this that darkens counsel, that does not bring the light of truth, of, of glorious, uh, redeeming, liberating truth? You are darkening counsel. It's not helpful, Job, what you're saying. And again, okay, why is this even in our book? If this is all wrong, because it reflects us so much, or we see ourselves in Job, we see ourselves in Eliphaz and Zophar and Bill. I wish that we could see ourselves in Elihu, being a one who speaks truth very directly, very maybe even some, some a lot of people regard him as a bombastic fool, but he's speaking out of love. He's speaking truth to change the heart of Job, and getting it, getting Job ready to receive God's own revelation in chapters thirty-eight and following. And so this book, the whole book of Job, teaches us who is this God and how can we relate to him? How can we draw near to him when things don't go our way? When we think, God, uh, did, you, did, you, did you know what just happened to me? Did you, wait till you read about it in the newspapers because it was bad. And we think we're, we're somehow bringing God up to speed with what's going on in our life. No, we can trust God because when our words are empty, verse 16, God's words are full meaning, of help, of comfort, of praise, of assurance, of carrying us through the times that we don't understand. We don't understand. We don't get it. But we know who does. We can rest in God. He is that Savior. We can find that that we can never, by our virtue or by our wickedness, put God in our debt so that God has to listen to us. No, God works in His own way, in His own time, for His own purposes, which includes our good, but ultimately it brings glory to Him. And because God is so jealous for his own glory, we can rest in the knowledge that everything will work out just fine. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. And we pray that it would expose the thoughts and intents of our hearts that fall short of your glory, that somehow do not reflect your righteousness, your perfections, and really even find fault with you. Please help us to let you be God and and to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And you will exalt us at the proper time. You are the one who does it. Whether it's in this life or in the next, we have assurance that in Christ we are accepted. In Christ we are redeemed. In Christ we have a confidence in the day of judgment that we will not be judged according to our deeds, what we did or didn't do, but upon what Christ has done. And we have that assurance. Please help us to live in fellowship with you and in fellowship with one another, that you would help us to work out our salvation, to demonstrate it, to grow in it because of what you have done and are doing in our lives. Again, we pray that you'd save and sanctify all of us. We want to honor you and grow. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.